special Vespers. If you come, that means we'll be having a special Vespers. It's, we're living in some exciting times. And next Sunday morning, we have a special constituency meeting, business meeting. And I need you to come to that meeting praying that the Spirit of God, a sense of divine providential leading. I'm not live streaming the meeting tonight because it's not for all the world, it's for us. So I'm inviting you. Also, another thing I'm inviting you to is next week I will be at Wisconsin Academy doing a week of prayer. And if you haven't noticed, I'm not as young as I used to be. But they've invited me, so I'm going to go. And we want the Lord to move. So I'm praying that your prayers will go before me. Let's pray. Lord, when we're all done here, may we have a greater desire to bless your name. And I'm praying, Lord, the way we're living, with all the people we meet, some who barely know you, some who don't know you, and some who know you well, that our lives would encourage them to bless your name. And I'm asking now, Lord, that your spirit would guide us on this journey in the word and that we would discover something new about you, about ourselves, and about the gift of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. When we think about blood, it's easy to talk about until we're in its presence. Other people's blood is traumatic when you're in the presence. The devil has hopes that we'll make as a form of entertainment the watching of the shedding of blood. But nothing is more sacred than blood. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. God knew in the garden where everything was going. It doesn't mean he preordained Adam and Eve's decisions, but once those decisions were made, he knew where everything was headed. And perhaps what's so startling is that you barely make it out of the garden before blood is being shed. Genesis chapter 4. Let's go down to verse 9. In verse 8, we know there's death. Cain rises up and kills Abel. And by the way, I'd like to take some time to talk about this another point in time, but Abel's only sin was doing what's right and talking about it. That's the only thing Abel did. The very good actions of Abel's life 
set up the experience that cost his life. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? But he did know. God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is the first of what will become a long storyline of God requiring an account of the most precious commodity in all of the earth. Drop by drop, God, who created this amazing being in his own image, runs on the life-giving, circulating power of blood. From the very beginning, we get this clear sense that there will be a distinct accountability in regards to all things living and red. When we start to think about blood guilt in the Bible, we need not go much farther than Genesis chapter 4. But the Bible has much to say about it. Turn over to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 14. A little bitty book. Jonah, Mike, and Nahum. One of those minor prophets. We have the story of men who understand this, heathen men. And they're reluctant to throw Jonah overboard. Why? Because even the heathen understood there was accountability with the taking of life. You know the story. He doesn't care if the blood of the Ninevites is required for all of their injustice. Grace is not queued up in the mind of Jonah the way it should be. And he runs away from the Lord and he falls asleep in the bottom of the boat, but everybody else is striving to maintain the ability to be above the water, not beneath it. And finally, he directs them, there's only one way out of this, cast me into the sea. Verse 14. But everybody on board understood blood guilt. Innocent people were not to die. And those who took the lives of others were to be held responsible, responsible. Then they called on the Lord, that is the sailors, and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. I want to take a few moments this morning, and I want to think about this. We're not going to look at every scripture, but you remember the story of Jezebel and Ahab in that beautiful vineyard. It just so happened that it was owned by somebody else. His name was Naboth. And the Bible tells us that, Jeze that Jezebel noticed that her husband was going around sullen. He was a grown-up boy. Unfortunately, he was a powerful grown-up adolescent-minded king. And Jezebel says, you're the king, you can have what you want. 
But Naboth didn't look at it that way. He knew that that vineyard was an inheritance from his father. It was an extension of the, the line of faithful ancestors that delivered it to him. But with a little planning and conniving, they can set Naboth up and they can take it away from him under the guise of a righteous action, the idea that somehow he's a blasphemer. And wouldn't you know it, the property is in the hands of the king. But God watched what went on there. And it's interesting that God explains through the prophet that there is blood guilt on the hands of Ahab. And God will avenge that blood guilt himself. And he does later on at the hands for the whole family, both sides of a variety of people. When we think about the destruction of Jericho, we see blood guilt at work again. The two spies go in. They're housed by a faithful woman who doesn't understand holy living yet, but she does know this. There is a God. He's at work, and he is owed my allegiance. I'll give it to these two men. I'll let them hide in my home. I'll risk my life. When she lets them down through the wall, I don't know if the rope was red or what. And I don't know if they said, hang this rope in the window, but there was to be a red cord hanging in the window. And if that red cord wasn't there, it's interesting what the outcome of the negotiations were. If the red cord's not hanging in the window, your blood is on yourself. It's not on us. Yes, God keeps track of all of these things. Now take your Bibles and turn over to Numbers chapter 35. In Numbers chapter 35, we find some direction about how to deal with those who have taken innocent life. Numbers chapter 35. How do you deal with these things? Beginning with verse 16. A variety of directions. We'll start with verse 15. The cities of refuge. These six cities shall be refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. and The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the, in the hand by which he will die, as a sure result he did die, he's a murderer. And the murderer shall be put to death. Verse 18, or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, as a result he died, he's a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He's a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. In the Old Testament laws, 
If innocent blood was shed and it was intentional, someone was responsible for the death of the murderer. He was a blood avenger. God kept track of these things. And there were moments when whole nations and whole families were held responsible for the slaying of innocent blood. Because blood is where the life is. Even animals were held, as it were, in lieu of responsibility for their actions. A deliberate homicide was death by execution. An accidental homicide was different. And that's where these cities of refuge, the one who accidentally slayed someone, could run to one of these cities of refuge. And as long as they stayed inside the city of refuge, when the high priest died, there was a sense of substitution that death had been requited for the accidental death, and the man or the woman, probably more typically the man, was free to leave the city until the high priest died in those cities of refuge. You lived there. You were living in the shadow of the high priest, and his death became sufficient to pay for yours. If a beast killed an individual... That beast died. And if the owner understood that the beast had a problem with goring, usually bulls, there was responsibility upon the owner. And we go all the way down to the dynamics of kosher food because even animals had a right to live. And when those animals were slain in a kosher way, the blood was returned to the altar, thus in some sense suggesting that the, the blood, the life of the animal was brought back to God, but it wasn't in the flesh. In other words, the idea of eating the animal with the blood in the flesh was offensive to God, not so much automatically on the merits of biological life, in the sense of potential disease, etc., but in the sense that God alone could give that life and it wasn't to be taken and consumed in a casual way. Bloodshed pollutes the land. Imagine how God feels when we allow ourselves to sit around and watch the violence of bloodshed for entertainment. There was no blood guilt with executing justice. The blood avenger was not guilty. The judge that declared through the law of God death for these murderous acts was not guilty. But I want you to think about Joab for a moment. Joab killed two men, not in war. Death in war, as well as self-defense, was not a homicidal act in the eyes of God. And so what does that do for Joab, who first kills Abner, who had 
warned one of Joab's brothers to quit chasing him, and he didn't. And what about Amasa, who's even a relative of Joab, who takes over the army for David after the revolt of Absalom? Both of these men were killed in a time of peace, but there was no execution of Joab. But when you come to the end of David's life, you find that David directs Solomon that this justice still needs to be cared for. And he tells Solomon, don't let his gray head go down to the grave without taking care of what needed to be taken care of. There's blood guilt. And if David is the monarch of the land, does not take care of proper execution of this blood guilt, then the blood guilt resides on David's household, which means Solomon. Solomon does take care of it. This brings us to some very interesting situations, especially when you think about David and the death of Uriah. That blood guilt was on the king himself. And God interjects into this story a slightly different turn of events, which only God could do. And it's not David who dies, but it is the offspring of the illicit encounter between David and Bathsheba. Now, it is not mine to explore all of the nuances of this this morning, but it is mine to bring you down to the death of Jesus. So take your Bibles and open up the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Nobody wants the blood of Jesus on their hands. Matthew, chapter 27. I'm going to bring together... The story of several against the context of blood guilt. You need to understand that everybody abandons Jesus. You need to understand what a violent affair this weekend was. When they came to get Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us they came with clubs and swords. One of the apostles, at least future apostles, not yet converted disciple, has a sword. And for as much as we hang a lot of chagrin on Peter, we better give this to him. Peter appears to be the only one bold enough to say it's not going to work this way. And as he draws his sword to save his master and gets an ear instead of the lopping off of a head, the violence that could have broken out in the garden is averted when Jesus tells him to put his sword away and reaches down and grabs the severed cartilage and reinserts it in its properly divined creation space. But it's a violent weekend. And now, after having bound Jesus... They take him into an encounter that is completely illegal and categorically wrong. And through the night, probably beginning very early in the hours 
of Friday morning. They seek to arraign Jesus before the bar of injustice. And finally, the sun comes up, and that's where verse 27, chapter 27, verse 1 begins. It's all done, except it's illegal to have a criminal trial that will result in death during the evening hours. Matthew 27, verse 1. Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. When we look at the entirety of the narrative, we understand that through the dark hours, they were searching for some way to accuse him of blasphemy. They finally found it. And when the sun rises on the Friday morning two millennia ago, it's okay. Because as verse 2 says, they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. It's all happened in darkness. It's the darkness of their hearts. It's the darkness of these deeds. And here's Judas. Judas understands blood guilt. And he never thought for a moment that the moment that he arranged an encounter between the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin and Jesus, would end up like this. Because Jesus has always bested the scribes and the Pharisees in encounters. And it wasn't that it was a showdown between Judas or Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. It was that Jesus was light and they were darkness. And he never could imagine in a million years that Jesus would allow the darkness to overcome the light. Imagine Judas in the hall that night. Watching Jesus struck, listening to the blasphemy himself, and waiting for Jesus to do what he knew Jesus would do because he was the Messiah, but he never did it. And before Jesus gets too far out of the precincts of the temple, he's compelled to go into action. When Judas who had betrayed him, saw, verse 3, that he had, he had been condemned. He felt remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Now, I want you to know something. For all the bad things about Judas... He's the only person in the crucifixion weekend that declares Jesus is innocent. It's wrung from the anguished heart of one who loved the world while he tried to love the Son of God, but he loved his own ideas and his own way of doing things more than he loved the cross-bearing Christ. And he refused his cross, refused to suffer, refused the reproach of the unlettered, insignificant Galilean, at least to the institutional church. But he can't bear to watch what's going on go on, and his anguished soul wrings these words from his lips, and as the sound of the silver is bouncing on the stones of the temple precincts, the scribes and the Pharisees 
are left startled as the shroud of supposed sacred interest is torn away and all that's left is the hypocrisy of their jealous, hateful envy. But this creates a problem because if you understand blood guilt and if you understand the other laws relating to the kind of funds that are now back in their hands, and by the way, what a cheap deal they made. 30 pieces of silver. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and they said, imagine this. On the backside of the darkest efforts of their lives. Imagine this. It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. You can be on the world-loving side of the Judases that want to do religion their way, or you can be over on the supposedly sacrosanct in this case, hypocritical side or hypocrisy side of very careful, conscientious religion. And you can step on Jesus and you can drive the nails with your own hands. It doesn't matter which side you're on. If your heart is not calibrated to the light of God's love, then the law of God's word is nothing but a shroud to hide behind. And they conferred together with the money bought and bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And for this reason, that field's been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price has been set by the sons of Israel, the price of a slave, I'll interject, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And sure enough, Judas rushes out of that place and having understood a bit of the theology of blood guilt and knowing the true innocency, the only innocent man to ever walk the face of the planet, at least in completeness, he hangs himself and he dies. But there's other people in this story who don't want the blood of Jesus on their hands. Go farther down. The Jews can't kill him themselves. So it has to go to the Romans. And while this is not the usual seat of authority for the Roman governor, during the festivals, they come here for just such a moment as this because you never know what's going to go on when you get this many frustrated Jews together. And there's Pilate. Woken in the morning, very early, but the chief priests will not go in. John chapter 18 tells us this. They don't want to be defiled by the presence of a Gentile. So standing outside, they encounter the, the governor. Pilate sees that he's different in a good way. And while he's engaging Jesus, he gets a message from his wife, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him a message saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. 
But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Skipping down to verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, It's interesting, a pagan king. But he's like the sailors on the ship of Jonah was on. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. Now turn over to Acts chapter 5. And we come back actually to the subject matter of last week's sermon. And I want to do it against the backdrop of blood guilt. Peter and John are no longer afraid. And they're making a horrific mistake, except that it's the horrific truth. Verse 27. They've been thrown in jail the night before for talking about Jesus. They had been let out, and they had been told to go back to the sanctuary, the temple precincts, and preach, which they were doing. The soldiers go to get them and breathe them ever so delicately for fear of being stoned themselves. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You see, it's a terrible mistake to make to be responsible for an innocent man's blood, especially if you're the teachers of Israel, especially if you understand the law, especially if you're a student of the prophets and the history. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as the prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we're witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. They put Jesus to death as a male factor. He was a blasphemer. He was one upsetting the civil society of Israel. He was dangerous to the nation, and it was better that one should die rather than all should die. And yet if he was actually raised to life, then they were indeed the murderers of God. And for this, they themselves were willing to murder again if they could silence the voices of these men. And as we saw last week, they could not. Turn back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 19, verse 31. But so fastidious were they in the pious actions of their pharisaical nature that something had to be done with that body, those bodies hanging on the trees. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross, on the Sabbath, 
for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Yes, I'm struck this Sabbath morning thinking about the brutality, the violence, and the blood. Every single drop of it. All of it accounted for by God. Now, mind you, most of us have never been involved in the extinguishing of someone's life. But God looked upon the death of the innocent especially with a certain abominating emotion that would relegate itself to law that would say man or beast, only one thing can result, and that is death. So sacred is the life that God alone could breathe into the magnificent machinery of man that this blood guilt could rest upon individuals, families, and nations, and no man would dare raise his hand to take another man's life except in self-defense. And by the way, friends, there was no blood guilt for self-defense. that he would keep a record of it. So yes, Ahab has to be dealt with. And so yes, Joab has to be dealt with. Why? Blood guilt. It's a different kind of guilt. And so we come to Jesus. Now, I don't know how much of your own blood you've ever seen. And I know blood has value. Blood past plasma can be sold and I've seen my own blood drop by drop fall to the ground. As a matter of fact, I can probably recall almost all the moments in my life where my blood came outside of its package and my attention was heightened. The most gruesome moment for me watching blood flow was when a man by the name of Larry Paul, who had hired me to work for him, when I was on the ground watching, as this man took extra risk, he took extra risk because there was this young man who needed to make money to go to church school, and so this tree trimmer and of course, they have very dangerous jobs, climbed his way up into a tree for which he was not making the proper amount of money for both he and I to come out of this looking good, took a shortcut. And with one of those light little chainsaws that you could hardly imagine could do much damage, he broke every rule of cutting wood that you could break. And as he, with his monkey-like ability, was going through the tree, 
He reached out to take a limb, which he didn't want falling in the wrong place, and he took with his youthful, strong arm that light little chainsaw, and he began cutting across that limb. The problem was he had miscalculated how rapidly the saw would sever the limb and how strong and rapid his reflex would be to stop the inertia, the movement of that chainsaw as it came through the limb and headed to his arm. And I, watching on the ground, watched as the chainsaw cut more than it was destined to cut right across his arm. And I've never been in a situation where I've seen the blood flow more freely. As it's running out of his arm and dripping onto the ground, here I am with very little life experience now directing a grown man in how to save his life. It has the ability to get our attention. Fortunately, he did not faint in the tree and fall to another form of accidental disadvantage. The job was over. I've never heard from him since. I should be much obliged if someone listening online should know him and connect the dots. I'm grateful for a man who went farther than he had to go to make sure somebody could stay in school because they needed a job. But when I come to the end of a message on blood guilt, I'm left with the knowledge that a violent age can easily overlook. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The song asked. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And then, I don't know if you could properly call it a refrain. The spiritual says, oh, oh, oh. Sometimes it causes me to tremble tremble. Why? It brings to mind another song by a much more modern group by the name of Selah, where the words of the second chorus say, Ashamed to hear my mocking voice call out amongst the scoffers. If I was there and you were there, if the collective whole of humanity was there, bound up in the animus and the insecurity, the pride and the hypocrisy of the religious establishment and the godless pagan Roman Empire, if we were actually there in the form of human race, what it means is we've all got blood guilt on our hands. 
And every single drop that flowed from the nail-pierced left hand and right hand and thorn-pierced brow and feet pierced by a Roman spike, every single drop of blood that stained the tree and stained the stones were blood that you and I shed. And when I think about the admonition of Ezekiel to the watchers on the wall in Ezekiel 33, it's all about blood guilt. And thus I find myself in the age of postmodern delivery where arraigning an entire human race before the bar of God's justice is so out of vogue I find myself in a moment of amazement that the whole race could be guilty blood guilt guilty where the very solution is the very problem and as John W. Stott would say you cannot see the cross as done something for you until you see the cross as something done by you are all of us following up on the heels of last week's sermon, the Adventist arrogance? Could anybody walk through the doors of this church or open the, the chapters of this word and be anything but awed into the absolute humility that the very act that would deem us worthy of death is the very act that brings us life, the Ability to bring these two things together is nothing but the mystery of godliness and the awesome execution of the innocent one that brings hope and life to you and to me because God keeps track of every precious drop from the first one that can be spared to the last one that extinguishes life. Yes, indeed, precious it is. If in these reflective moments. We've been too long since we've stopped to realize that the blood guilt of the human race is partially mine and partially yours. The price of blood in the Bible is blood. The blood avenger could be God himself. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have died in the garden without any help from any human being. But no, it appears that we had to go farther than the weight of sin went on its own in those solitary moments on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. It wasn't enough that Jesus should just be crushed by the darkness of our lives. It's that you and I were there. Every gawking eye, every running away, every abandonment of association, every covetous, greedy act that suggests God should do it our way, every hypocritical word and movement and thought, every institutional structure that legitimated itself, every conscientious action to make sure none of the rest of the law was broken dealing with this malfactor. Oh, I was there. The curse doesn't rest 
upon the Jews who interestingly said, with all knowledge of these things, when Pilate washes his hands, let his blood be on us. For if that man was innocent, only one thing could be the result, and that is certain death by the hand of God himself. And yet those hands were stretched out and pierced where he could have been the blood avenger. He was the sacrifice for all the blood that was being shed in the moment and had been shed and would be shed in all of time. Oh, that precious blood. The blood of Jesus. How do you spend blood money? What do you do with a man who reveals things about yourself you don't want to see? Who turns things upside down and changes it all around? Nobody wanted it, and we still don't want it in some respects. Give me my religion, but don't change anything. Don't mess with anything. I want the habits that have brought me comfort. I want the friends that have brought me solace. I want the joys that my socializing has rendered in this great culture of Adventism. But don't try to move me and don't change too much. It was for all these things that Jesus found himself on the wrong end of justice. And the death he died was mine and it was yours. Every precious drop of blood, every Roman calloused hand that swung that heavy hammer the same diseased soul the same ignorant actions the same haughty high ground is woven through the fabric of potential of every single human being. And Jesus' death on the cross should have been the final reason to destroy this human race. But instead, it's the breaking forth of the great tide of grace that gives every single one of us hope. It is a irony that cannot be explained, although it ought to be experienced. It is only to be known by the humble who could see the darkness in their own hearts, which so many on that weekend 2,000 years ago refused to do. But the very act that should have caused the rest of heaven to say, no more of them, is what opened the minds and the hearts and the gates of heaven to all of us. Be astonished, O heavens, and wonder, O earth. Now, I want to do something different at the end of this message. I want to sing two songs. I want to start by singing, Were You There? Number 158, if we could bring that up on the screen. And then when we transition to our other chosen song, number 334, we'll stand. You want to open your hymn books? That'd be fine. If you want to look on the screen, that'd be fine. Were you there? And we're going to sing it reflectively. 158. 